Shalom and welcome back to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koaz in Tel Aviv. This episode, we're featuring a special Israel Policy Forum briefing that was recorded earlier today with Israeli journalist Barak Ravid. Barak was previously the diplomatic correspondent for Haaretz newspaper and most recently the diplomatic correspondent for Israel's Channel 13, Reshet. He is also a contributor to Axios. The briefing focuses on the continuing protests in Israel against Benjamin Netanyahu and his government, their handling of coronavirus and the corruption cases, among other reasons. And also, Barack will talk about looming West Bank annexation and where that stands. The call was moderated by Israel Policy Forum Board Chair Susie Gelman, and there was some emergency moderation from my co-host of the podcast, Evan Gottesman, because of a storm on the East Coast of the United States. So Evan, thanks for stepping in. Without further ado, enjoy the briefing, and we'll catch you next episode. Yalla, bye. Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and it's my privilege to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. Israel Policy Forum is committed to advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to ensure Israel's security and its Jewish and democratic future. In furtherance of our core mission, we've been raising the alarm about the threats posed by West Bank annexation for the past three years, educating American policymakers in Washington, American Jewish communal leaders, and emerging leaders of the next generation. We are not letting down our guard, even as some question whether annexation will actually happen. In recent months, and in the face of the ongoing public health crisis, Israel Policy Forum has ramped up its activity. Last month, July, our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, received nearly 16,000 listens, our record for all of 2020. Our most recent episode features a conversation with New York Times Jerusalem Bureau reporter Adam Raskon on how the Palestinian Authority security forces are responding to the possibility of annexation. If you've not already done so, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, as well as on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. In June, more than 2,000 participants registered to join our special virtual program, The Road Ahead, Leading Responsibly for Israel's Future, which brought together leaders from the Israeli and American national security spheres, as well as the Jewish community, for critical conversations on the consequences of unilateral annexation. Those discussions remain timely and important. If you missed any part of that event, a recording is available on our website. Finally, our Young Professionals Program, IPF Atid, continues to drive home the importance of perseverance in our work. IPF Atid's ongoing campaign, Our Future Israel, is mobilizing millennials to speak out against annexation and in support of a secure Jewish democratic Israel. Last week, we were fortunate to hear from leading millennial voices as part of this campaign. 
A recording of that session is also available online. Israel Policy Forum's commitment to the vision of a secure Jewish democratic Israel is unwavering. But we depend upon your generous support in order to keep up this momentum. So I encourage you to invest in our work. The phrase in these difficult times has become something of a refrain in the Jewish communal sphere over the past few months. But it is precisely because of the fact that we remain in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, while annexation is still on the agenda in Israel, that we're so grateful for your continued engagement. To all of our supporters on this call, thank you. And for those who have not yet done so, I encourage you to make a contribution to Israel Policy Forum at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now to today's program. As many of you are likely aware, widespread protests began in Israel in recent weeks, with citizens demonstrating against Prime Minister Netanyahu's continued tenure, corruption, and government mismanagement of the coronavirus pandemic and the economic crisis. Some are raising demands about discrimination, racism, and threats to Israeli democracy, including annexation. In Israel, the protests have touched nearly every corner of the country and have drawn tens of thousands in attendance, making this the largest series of mass demonstrations since the 2011 social justice tent protests. This past weekend, those protests went global with Israeli Americans raising these same issues at demonstrations from New York to San Francisco. To get an inside look at what is going on at these protests, we are most fortunate to be joined by one of Israel's top journalists, Barak Ravid. Barak is a contributor for Axios and has been a correspondent for Israel's Channel 13 and Haaretz newspaper. So before we begin, a few reminders. We encourage you to ask questions of our speaker, which we will address in the latter half of today's program. To submit a question, please type it out in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Next, a recording of this program will be posted to our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, later on today. The study will also be launched on our website today. With that, let's begin. Barak, thank you so much for joining us. So to start things off, Barak, Sorry, can you provide us with a brief timeline of the latest wave of protests? When and where did they start? How did they expand across the country? The black flag protests were going on as early as this spring and in what way is this related? Actually, um, those uh, protests uh, started uh, quite some time ago. Um, it got the attention of the Israeli media and of uh, more people in Israel Uh, in the last few weeks. But if you look back, I think you can go even a year back, maybe more than a year, uh, that those demonstrations took place. It was much smaller, obviously, but almost every week there was a protest uh, right next door to Netanyahu's uh, official residence at Balfour Street uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, And out of those protests, uh, more than a year ago, this movement of the black flags uh, was founded. Uh, It was a movement that started from, I mean, usually protest and uh, social protest, political protest start from young people. Uh, Here, uh, it started from the parents. Sometimes it started from their grandparents. Uh, People um, in the ages of between 50 to 80, to sometimes to 85, 
were part of this group uh, of Israelis that decided that um, they want to protest the fact that there's a prime minister uh, who has uh, three indictments uh, uh, against him and that he's, uh, uh, at the time, in his trial still uh, hasn't started. But this was the... This was the beginning, a protest against the fact that there's the prime minister with uh, three uh, very serious corruption uh, uh, charges against him and uh, indictments. Um, and what happened was that those protests um, came together with the corona crisis. Uh, when the corona crisis started uh, in, uh, in February, uh, it was still before the elections here, uh, before the last elections. Uh, and, but at the time, the uh, limitations that the government uh, decided on uh, were, were, rather, um, were rather limited. I mean, it, wasn't, it was affecting people's lives, but it wasn't uh, very draconian, uh, meaning one of the steps the government took even before the elections was to uh, stop foreigners, foreign nationals from entering the country and stop stopping uh, flights from abroad uh, landing in Israel, uh, which was one of the best steps the government took because it bought Israel a lot of time facing the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, but uh, the fact that we had for quite a long time, since February, uh, until the formation of the, of the government in May, Okay, we had all this time a, uh, a transition government um, that uh, Netanyahu basically uh, took almost all the, sh- all the decisions on his own uh, at a time that he really had uh, a government which was a transition government of a transition government of a transition government with no real uh, democratic uh, or popular mandate. Um, and... The problem started when uh, a lot of the decisions that the government wanted to take uh, seemed to big parts of the Israeli society as uh, strange, um, over-the-top, disproportional, uh, and some of them were also seemed draconian. Um, This does not mean, by the way, that as few conspiracy theorists here in this country think that uh, Netanyahu invented the corona and it was a made-up uh, crisis and that this whole pandemic is fake and he only did it in order to uh, continue on controlling the country and he's a dictator and we are uh, Romania in the times of Ceausescu. This is not the case, although there are many conspiracy theories that do say that. <coughs> but some steps that the government took, and again, it, the, the fact that it was the government that really did not have a mandate, uh, steps like uh, using the, um, the domestic uh, uh, security service, the Shin Bet, uh, to uh, uh, trace uh, people uh, uh, that uh, are suspected as being infected with corona, uh, the fact that the, that the government uh, used emergency decrees uh, to, uh, for example, uh, shut down most of the operations of the courts, which led to postpone- postponement in Netanyahu's trial. I think it was some- something that seemed to many Israelis as a step 
that was a political uh, political use of the crisis in order to postpone Netanyahu's trial uh, and other steps, several attempts by uh, government ministers to use the uh, emergency decrees to crack down on uh, protests, uh, to uh, to ban demonstrations and 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 protest. This obviously did not did not pass. It was stopped by the attorney general and all sorts of other. Uh, steps. And what happened out of this is that, in a way, it brought more and more people to join this movement of the black flags, uh, which started demonstrating week after week, and it moved from demonstrating in Balfour Street to also demonstrating on bridges all across uh, the country on the weekends. And uh, after the government was already uh, formed, Uh, during one of those protests in Balfour Street near the Prime Minister's residence, the the leader of the Black Flags group was arrested by police. Uh, And this caused uh, a major uproar in the country and I think in the weeks after brought many more people into the protests. But what actually uh, made the protest grow exponentially uh, like the pandemic in a way, is the fact that after the first wave of the corona, that was actually managed quite well by the government, okay? Um, and Netanyahu deserves credit for his management in the first wave of the corona. The only problem is that in May, when Netanyahu uh, announced that we won and the corona was defeated um, and the new government was formed, Netanyahu stopped dealing with the corona almost completely. And he did that in tandem with the fact that the Minister of Health has changed, the Director General of the Ministry of Health uh, was replaced, and a lot of other uh, senior officials in the health ministry um, were replaced. And Netanyahu moved on and started dealing with the annexation. And while, deal- while dealing with the annexation, uh, no one was actually dealing with the corona. And in many ways, this was one of the main reasons that led us to the second wave of the corona. Because all along in those two months, uh, between the end of the first wave and the beginning of the second wave, not much was done. Meaning there was no mechanism that was built in order to trace infections very, very quickly and cut them. There was no uh, corona tsar that was appointed. Um, many of the processes that 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 were that it was clear that the government need to to build in order to get ready for a second wave. All of that, nothing really happened with that. So we started getting into a second wave of the corona, and the result was that the government needed to start. Uh, um, uh, putting limitations again on uh, on the the population, and this led to even more protests, mainly because of the economy. Because we, Israel, as in the U.S. and many other countries, the Corona brought with it uh, an economic pandemic too, and the fact that the government uh, uh, didn't take the, the the appropriate measures to get ready for a second wave, the fact that the economy was going down, and the fact that uh, um, the combination of those two 
and and the second wave led to very unclear steps and decisions by the government i think uh led many many israelis uh to the point that they said we we're going to demonstrate and then you started seeing in those demonstrations that started from the black flags and with people in the ages of 50 to 80 all of a sudden there was a switch and the people who started coming to those protests were uh millennials and people uh that were you know 20 30 40 those are the ages and those are people that many of them lost their jobs because of the 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 crisis they can't pay rent some of them don't even have money to to buy food they don't see not anything on the horizon and they just uh, and and a lot of them are people with small businesses and they and that their businesses were shut down because of the uh, corona they went back bankrupt so a lot of them came and demonstrate to demonstrate and the black flags in a way were replaced by this group that it was a combination of people who demonstrated against Netanyahu's alleged corruption people who demonstrated against um uh that that are political opponents of Netanyahu but again a bi- very big group of people who were the victims of the corona crisis that came and said we can't uh do it anymore and we saw demonstrations in Tel Aviv we saw demonstrations in Jerusalem we saw demonstrations in other places of the country and we saw the black flags movement that continued on in parallel to those demonstrations and you and in the last weekend there were demonstrations on 250 bridges across the country that on every bridge you saw from you know five people standing to 200 people standing on the bridge waving israeli flags and black flags and demonstrating against netanyahu's corruption so those demonstrations are not about one issue okay but they are about one issue meaning all of those protesters are calling netanyahu to step down but for different reasons some of them because of the economy some of them because of the corona crisis some of them because of the corruption some of them because of the annexation but the overall umbrella idea that is uniting all those protesters is that netanyahu needs to step down so that clearly is their main demand but are there other demands that uh, protesters are making and to what extent would you describe this as a unified movement at this point i you know it's it's very hard uh uh to say um i think that there's no uh there's not one message okay if you go to the demonstrations in in on balfour street you will see uh several different demonstrations in one demonstration you will see those who come and uh um uh uh give flowers to the uh to the policemen and and uh you see other group that uh come to sing songs and and uh and uh, play guitars you see other people who are coming to demonstrate uh for uh you know civil rights you see so there are many different groups and you see people who come to demonstrate because they lost their jobs so you see different groups in one demonstration uh and the overall message is that it's people that say Netanyahu uh 
uh, needs to go. But there's no real organization behind it. There's no real uh, leadership for this, uh, for this um, uh, uh, protest. Um, for example, there was a great uh, article on Haaretz um, that took eight protesters who were arrested by the police for, for joining the protest, and they interviewed them. And all of those people are people that were, most of them were not uh, politically active, meaning that they were not involved politically. Politics didn't really interest them until the corona crisis, until they lost their jobs, until they saw what happened to their parents, until they saw how the government is, is, is dealing with the, with the situation. And I think that, in a way, changed the situation for them and made them politically involved and got them to join uh, the protest. So I think it is still a bit early to say whether this is really a, um, um, a movement with an organization behind it, with a uh, leadership behind it. It is still uh, a bit unclear how, how you d- describe it. I mean, when you... Sometimes there is a tendency... To uh, to say oh it's like the it's like what you uh, see in America okay it's like the George Floyd uh, demonst- uh, protest it's not really it's not really there are, it's it's very um, tempting to make those uh, analogies but it's it's not exactly the same it's not exactly the same and and the motivations uh, uh, behind it are are not exactly the same and. And I think something else, which is not the same, that um, at the end, in many of the protests in America, but mainly the civil rights protests, you see that at the end there's, there's some sort of uh, organization that is involved in the protest, meaning that there's, there's a set of, set of uh, let's say, uh, goals, set of values. Um, um, and here you still don't see uh, don't see that there's no real um, organizational uh, idea behind those protests. I think we lost Susie for a moment. Yeah, I think so, so too. Yeah. Um, sorry, I can take over and ask okay. a question for you. Uh, this is Evan from Israel Policy Forum. Um, so we have some questions, um, in the audience. I want to remind everyone that, uh, you can submit your questions through the Q and a box, uh, on the bottom of your screen. And we'll just go through a few more questions. Um, then we'll get to some of the audience questions. So, um, you know, looking at these protests and, and who's behind these protests, who's supporting these protests, some of the organizational support behind them includes like Darkenu, the Green Movement. These are groups from the political left and center in Israel. Uh, what about the people who are actually showing up for these protests? Are these people who are mainly left-wingers, um, people from the center left like the organizations that are behind these movements, or does it represent a broader cross-section of Israeli society? Uh, at first, I'm, I don't think that uh, the Arkenu and the Green Movement are really be behind the protest. I guess, you know, they're also part of, part of some of the people may, may come to the to those protests but it's not like they're the they're behind it 
Um, it's, it's, that's the main question. Okay, who are those people who are coming? And I think that the people you see in those protests now um, is, um, are people that, again, a lot of them were not politically involved. This is, I think, one of the main interesting things. It's not people that would uh, naturally go out of their houses and go and protest against the government. It's people that were, I think, a lot of them were indifferent to politics. And this is why a lot of it, the, the, the sentiment is, uh, reminds, at least to me, it reminds the social protests of 2011, when it's, 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 a, it's a protest that, again, um, makes people who are not politically involved go out of their houses and take part in a political action. Uh, like like a demonstrations like like a demonstration like a protest against uh, the prime minister, and I think this is the interesting part. Whether uh, the the question a lot of people are asking is, uh, you know, uh, do people that uh, voted for Netanyahu join those protests? I guess some of them do. Uh, does this mean that uh, uh, Netanyahu is uh, losing his base? I think it's it's much too early to say. Um, we if we try and, and if we really try and and, and uh, check whether those uh, protest uh, protests have uh, uh, influenced uh, the political situation. Of course, they did uh, because you see how uh, nervous Netanyahu and his supporters are from from those protests. But can we say if it's says something about the next elections, I'm not sure. Um, if we try and analyze the latest polls, we see obviously that Netanyahu, Netanyahu's uh, um, um, is losing a lot of uh, support. A few weeks ago, uh, Netanyahu in some of the polls had 37, 38, sometimes even more. Sometimes in one of the polls, he had 40 seats. Uh, and uh, now if you look at the polls, he's at 30, 31, 32. So obviously he's losing a lot of votes. Uh, but is it because of the protests? I'm not sure. I think it's more because of the economic situation that is, you know, very, very bad. You see it in America too. Uh, we have, um, several hundred thousands of people that are unemployed, um, and it doesn't seem that uh, this situation is going to change uh, anytime soon. The employment rate, un unemployment rate is at least 20%. Uh, so this is, um, uh, this is a, a situation that uh, I think uh, caused, causes Netanyahu to lose a lot of support. But I'm not sure uh, the, the, the protests uh, have uh, a direct connection. But if, you know, those protests will gain more and more uh, momentum and more and more support, at the end of the day, behind every person that goes and joins the protest, there are some of his friends and family members that stay at home, but they hear from him afterwards how it went and, and, and why, why did he go. And again, at the end of the day, those things influence people. Uh, so, um, so I think that those protests... Uh, even though 
uh, it's obviously still you don't see in those protests, uh, you know, the masses from Netanyahu's base that are coming and protesting against him. Okay, but you do you do see uh, people that were not involved politically, and on the other hand, uh, in the counter protests, um, you usually don't see more than uh, several dozen people. Uh, that come and uh, 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 demonstrate uh, in support of Netanyahu, which usually between thirty to forty people that come to the uh, come to the Balfour Street to support Netanyahu. Barack, sorry for my temporary uh, uh, loss of power, as uh, some of us on the East Coast are experiencing uh, a hurricane, and uh, so I, I lost power. So that's why. Uh, Evan had to jump in, but I'll do my best to carry on here. No problem. Hopefully Stay we'll... safe. That's the most important thing. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm safe. It's just that, anyway. So, Barack, you wrote in Haaretz recently that even though the coronavirus put other issues on the back burner, Netanyahu still wants to proceed with annexation. In June, we saw some Israelis protest against annexation. To what extent, if at all, are concerns about annexation a feature of the current protests, and why is this the case? Uh, I'll tell you uh, very straight to the point. Um, very few people care about annexation in this country. Very few. Um, there was a poll done uh, several weeks ago when Netanyahu was still uh, uh, um, dealing intensively with, uh, with the annexation. It showed that 4% of Israeli voters are interested in annexation. Four uh, percent. In the same poll, uh, they asked how many Israelis are concerned with the economic situation. It was 69 percent. Uh, in another poll, uh, it, it was uh, uh, another poll showed that 85 percent of Israelis are concerned for their economic future. So when you t- when you take all those uh, polls and you see you see that at the end of the day and Netanyahu realized that it was it was uh, uh, a month it was a month late uh, and it got us to a second wave of Corona but at the end of the day he understood that people just don't they don't care they, it, they just don't care they care about the economy and when they see him dealing with annexation instead of dealing with the economy and with the Corona crisis. They, you know, they criticize him and they stop supporting him. Uh, so Netanyahu uh, also, in the last few weeks, didn't really deal with the annexation. And um, I'm telling you, at least uh, as far as I know, um, uh, in the last three weeks, there was no, there were no discussions whatsoever between the Israeli Prime Minister's office and the White House about annexation. No serious and meaningful negotiations or talks or discussions about it. Um, And at least I don't know about any plans for such discussions uh, this week. And uh, there might be something new next week, but right now, there's nothing scheduled for next week too. So, uh, and I think that as we get closer to September, uh, if we get to September, it will be highly unlikely that this issue 
that it would be possible to move forward on this issue, taking into consideration uh, the U.S. elections. I, I just don't see it's just too complicated. You have to you have to understand that there's no. Uh, it's the problem is not between the White House and, and the Prime Minister's office in Israel. The pro- the problem is first within the Israeli government. The, the, there's no consensus about if if Israel should annex anything, if if it should, what, which parts. Uh, uh, so there's there's really no consensus within the government. Um, the uh, the Minister of Defense and uh, Benny Gantz and the Minister of Foreign Affairs Gabi Ashkenazi both said publicly two weeks ago that uh, everything which is not taking care of the corona and the economic situation should be put aside until further notice. Uh, and I don't see their position changing. Um, there were really no meaningful discussions within the Israeli government, within the, in, in part of, there was no real interagency process. So I find it very hard to believe that it's possible to, to you know, to move forward with such a step at least according to the uh, current information in hand. Um, I, I, and, and, you, and you also have to take into consideration the fact that right now Israel is also in a political crisis, meaning there's no budget. Uh, if there is no budget until August 25th, the Knesset dissolves automatically, the government breaks up automatically, and we're going for fourth elections in two years. This is uh, as, as nuts as it may seem to, to all of you that uh, no matter what, you have your elections every four years um, or to Congress every two years. Uh, think about it, four election campaigns in two years. It's, it is completely, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's total dysfunction of the political system. And uh, so if this is the case and we're going for another elections, in three weeks, it really means that annexation is off the table until after the Israeli election. You have to you remember once the Knesset dissolves and it's a, an interim government, a transition government, it's basically illegal to to uh, um, to take such steps like uh, annexation. So again, I'm not saying that annexation died. I'm just saying that it's dying. And it doesn't mean that uh, you can't uh, uh, somehow uh, take it out of uh, the coma and, and uh, put it back to life. But uh, at least now it would be very, very hard to do. So as a follow-up to that, uh, Laura Rosen asks, uh, first of all, she says, hi all, but Rod, thank you for doing this. Good to see you. Wondering hi, if the... Wondering, Laura's wondering if the Trump administration's peace plan slash annexation option discussions ended up distracting Netanyahu, taking up too much bandwidth, and if it is essentially a favor that he would have been better off without. Oh, no, I don't think that Netanyahu is sorry for the, for the Trump plan. I just think that what he did is that he tried to destroy the plan. Netanyahu was presented with the plan at the end of January. The plan, I don't know if how many of you read it, it's uh, very uh, uh, detailed. And basically what it is, it's a package. 
It's a package deal. And Netanyahu tried to cherry pick out of this package deal and to take only the parts that are um, comfortable for him and only the parts that he gains. Uh, by the way, it's part of his behavior in other uh, parts of his life that uh, he only likes the, the revenue. He doesn't like to pay. Um, and, and I think that this is what happened again, that he tried uh, for some reason. Uh, he refused to listen to the messages he got from the White House that told him that you won't be able to just annex whatever you want right after we present our plan. And this is why it was a, a diplomatic embarrassment for him at the end of January, where he, right after the ceremony at the White House, I remember I was at the Blair House for a briefing with Netanyahu right after the ceremony. And I reported several hours before that the, the White House is against annexation. And Netanyahu uh, in this briefing uh, said, oh, somebody here uh, around the table just reported a few hours ago that the White House is against annexation. I'm going to bring to the cabinet next week the annexation of all the settlements. Several hours later, uh, the White House moved to, uh, uh, to on-the-record statements telling him that he can't and he had to climb down this tree in a very embarrassing way. Um, and I think that since then, the White House is trying to uh, explain to Netanyahu um, very politely, by the way, that it's a package deal, that you can't just take the annexation and say, okay, I'm taking the annexation, but the part about the Palestinian state, oh, no, 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 this is not something I'm ready to do. Uh, I'm ready to negotiate, but I'm not ready to say that I accept this uh, framework of uh, uh, a Palestinian state. Uh, and, and I think that uh, what happened is that um, um, the White House basically told Netanyahu, okay, you want to annex something? Great but it needs to be within the framework of our plan and not as a standalone step. For example, you want to annex small part of the West Bank? No problem. You need to give something to the Palestinians at the same time. I think Netanyahu didn't really like this, uh, um, this attitude, and, and I think that this is part of the reason that uh, for now uh, nothing uh, was annexed and uh, it, we might... Uh, not see uh, anything annexed until after the, uh, the elections. You, and you have to remember that uh, the Trump administration, in the end, it wants this plan to succeed somehow, okay? Meaning, let's say the Palestinians are not coming to the table, okay? And you can't get negotiations going and, and you can't promote this plan on this track. But there's another track. There's a track of Israel and the Arab world. And if there's one thing that the Trump administration deserves a lot of credit is that in the last three years, uh, the relations between, the, uh, uh, between Israel and many Arab countries, mainly Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Oman, uh, uh, Qatar, all those relations were, uh, Egypt, of course, all those relationships were dramatically strengthened. Uh, and and Trump administration deserves credit for it. Uh, but people in the White House, I think, they look at the plan and they say, okay, how can we, even if the Palestinians can't, won't come to the table, can we use this plan in order to 
make Israel and the Arab world take another step, meaning sign some kind of agreements, uh, go to uh, even further normalization. And I think that uh, this is part of the reason that the, that the White House doesn't want to see Netanyahu doing steps that might hamper the ability to promote uh, or, uh, some steps between Israel and the Arab world, even if the Palestinians won't come to the table. And, and I think that uh, uh, if Trump uh, wins in the elections and, has a, and if he get a second term, one of the things that we'll see is that the White House will use the plan in order to get the Arab world closer to Israel. So we have a question that really is a follow-up to what you're just saying from someone who's a huge fan of your scoops, who wants to know how likely is it that instead of going ahead with annexation, the Trump administration will seek rewards from the Arabs for Israel not going ahead with annexation? Um, there were such ideas. Um, I know several Israeli officials that uh, tried to push those ideas. I know of several U.S. officials who were, you know, thinking about s- such ideas. And I know uh, about Arab officials who were thinking about those ideas. Um, but I think that in a way, the fact that... Um, uh, the situation in Israel is such that you have a second wave of corona, you have protests, demonstrations, uh, um, disagreements inside the government about annexation. I think it made it clear to everybody that, you know, maybe it's better off just to not not do anything uh, and just let it, in a way, you know, die on its own. So I have a question, and then I want to combine it with a couple of questions from the audience having to do with the protests, but also the the current political map, if you will. So obviously the size and scope of these protests has been very impressive, but it's interesting to note that despite the furor directed against Prime Minister Netanyahu by so many people across so much of the country, and poor scores in public public opinion polling about the government's handling of the pandemic, Netanyahu's Likud party is still projected to win more than 30 seats in the Knesset, which would make it by far the largest party, should new elections be called. So my question, and then I'll I'll add to it the other questions that are related. My question is, why don't these protests seem to be more of an impediment for Bibi and a boon to the opposition parties? And before you answer, Barack, I'm just going to add a couple from Aaron David Miller. Hi, Aaron. The protests are leaderless. That term may also apply to the opposition to Netanyahu at a political level. You can't beat something with nothing. Is Benny Gantz as feckless as he appears, as weak as he appears? And then finally, Neil Gross asks, um, does the black flag movement restrict its opposition to only Bibi or to both him and Gantz? And isn't the purpose to express opposition to the coalition of both? If so, what leadership would the black flag intend to install in their place? Uh, so I'll start with the last question. The black flags are mainly against uh, protesting against Netanyahu over his uh, uh, alleged corruption and indictments that this is why they uh, started the protest. This is uh, why they do it, still do it now. Uh, Gantz, in a way, even though I'm sure that a lot of them 
are mad at him because they voted for him uh, is not a real target for them right now. Gantz is in a way for many for many Israelis. I think it's clear that politically he's not that relevant at the moment, uh, and he might not be relevant anymore. Uh, so he's and then by the way, Benny Gantz, if if he has one quality, is that it's very hard for people to um, to not to, to really hate him. It's I I don't know anybody who hates Benny Gantz. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, um, and and until and I don't know if it's a good quality for a politician or a bad quality for a politician, but it's just what it is. Um, and about the um, and, you know and and about the Likud and and the, the leadership of the protest. Um, it's true that the Likud still in the polls is the biggest uh, party because uh, Netanyahu's base is uh, 30 seats and it doesn't seem to get any lower than that. But, and there's a big but, uh, unlike, you know, some of you obviously know, but some of you might not know, uh, you know, Israeli politics is, is very different uh, from U.S. politics because it's not a... Um, it's it's not the winner takes it all. Meaning, uh, the biggest if you're the biggest party, it still does not mean that you're the prime minister. Uh, at the end of the day, you need to get to the magic number of 61 members of Knesset who will uh, uh, raise their hands and and support swearing in of, of your government. And uh, Netanyahu, in in the ele- in the first election in uh, 2019 and then the second election of 2019, and then the third election in 2020, he never got to the 61 uh, uh, members of Knesset uh, threshold. Uh, and this is why he couldn't really form uh, um, a pure right-wing government. Um, so this is the only question, uh, whether Netanyahu will be able to get to 61. If he does, then... He can do what, basically whatever he wants in this country. Uh, but if he can't, uh, I think it will be the end of his political career because right now all the um, uh, members of the opposition um, are, very, are totally united behind kicking, kicking him out. And it creates those very strange... Uh, alliances between Avigdor Lieberman and Ahmad Tibi, um, uh, Yair Lapid and Ayman Ode, um, uh, that are basically all of them, if they get to 61, which they did in the last election, okay, if they get to 61, they won't hesitate for a minute to swear in a government, whatever it is, even if it's just for a short period of time, just to kick Netanyahu out of Balfour Street. So um, I think this is the only question. And, and, uh, um, and the big question mark is if those demonstrations and the protests we see now, uh, will, what are they going to do? Are they going to get Netanyahu to 61? Because somehow we will use those protests to rally his base. Okay? Or they will get the other side to 61. That's the, the only questions that only question that people need to have in mind. 
So I think we have time for one or two more because I know you have to leave in five minutes, Barack, and this has been fascinating and we could go for a lot longer and we have a lot of questions. Uh, Lenny Lerner, hi Lenny, uh, asks, while the unifying goal of the protest is to get rid of Netanyahu, how can that happen as a practical matter when there appears to be no viable opposition party at the moment? An internal Likud rebellion? What are the chances of that, Barack? Uh, there's no chance of an internal Likud uh, rebellion. Zero okay. chance. What What are the chances of an internal uh, Republican Party rebellion? <laughs> FS. Same thing. <laughs> yes, same thing. Um, all right, let me move to Janet Halbert. Uh, says, thank you, Barack. Even if annexation is dying, what about settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem? Occupation is not dying. Please comment. That's true. I agree with every word. It's not a... Uh, um, uh, by the way, uh, unfortunately, uh, there was settler violence uh, before against Palestinians before Netanyahu. And I'm afraid to say that there will be settler violence against Palestinians after Netanyahu. Um, right now, and it's, it's, uh, it really, I'm not saying that uh, Netanyahu is not responsible for the, for, you know, in part for the situation, but again, I don't see any major breakthrough. Uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process as long as the political leaderships on both sides do not change. Uh, and it's... Uh, so, um, with all the uh, responsibility that Netanyahu has for the stalemate in the peace process and for the uh, um, deep crisis of Israeli-Palestinian relations, uh, Netanyahu leaving will not be enough to, uh, uh, to make a, a real change in the, uh, you know, in the peace process. Barak, uh, Jason Berkovich asks, are there any up-and-coming leaders within the opposition that American Jews and supporters of the U.S.-Israel relationship should be keeping a closer eye on? Um, unfortunately, uh, I don't see any right now. Um, it's, it, it, it doesn't seem that uh, there are any, uh, there's anybody with uh, a lot of appetite to uh, jump into the political, uh, to the Israeli political cesspool. Um, um, the only person who's, uh, um, who's still uh, um, very adamant in his uh, uh, efforts to try and become uh, a viable candidate for the prime minister's uh, post is uh, Yair Lapid, uh, which uh, who did not agree to join Gantz in 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 joining this uh, unity government, and he stayed in the opposition. He's now the head of the opposition, but he's still. It seems that he still has this uh, glass ceiling of twenty seats. And more than that, doesn't seem to be uh, having any success in moving uh, votes from the other side. And he has a lot of uh, problems with, for example, the ultra-Orthodox. But again, saying that, you have, I, I still go to the same point. Right now, 
you don't have to be the biggest party in order to win those elections. You need to have the biggest block. And while Yair Lapid will not be the biggest party, okay, he, he made some moves uh, that uh, I think he, he didn't do for many, many years. For example, today Yair Lapid is ready, and he said it publicly, that he's ready to cooperate politically with the Arab joint list. This is something that Lapid refrained uh, from doing for, for a long time. Uh, and um, he even had some semi-racist uh, um, statements against the members of, of the Arab joint list. And I think that he changed his, his uh, attitude uh, towards them. And he's much, ready, he's much more ready today to cooperate with them. And this is a very meaningful political change, because if you, uh, you know, analogies, I just said earlier that analogies are not always uh, good between uh, Israeli and U.S. politics, but can you imagine a situation where the uh, uh, Democratic candidate for president would say, I don't want the uh, Latino vote. Don't vote for me. I don't want you. Okay. For many, many years, uh, left center left uh, leaders in this country basically told the uh, uh, Arab voters, "We don't want you. We don't want you. We don't want to cooperate with your elected uh, representatives." And this thing has changed. Okay, at least as long as as Netanyahu is the prime minister, in any future elections there will be uh, cooperation between any center left leader and the Arab voters and the representatives in the Knesset. How much, I know you need to go, and I don't want to get overstay your welcome, but um, how much is Ayman Oda a part of that, that evolution, would you say? Uh, I, think, I think it was, uh, some of the steps he did were very meaningful. Uh, I think he showed a lot of leadership on many, uh, in many points in time, but still, uh, he, uh, Ayman Oda, uh, um, still has to think um, uh, he made a lot of steps uh, in the right direction, but more are needed, in my opinion. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, Barak, and I really appreciate it. As I say, we could have easily gone another hour with uh, all the questions. And to those who didn't get their question asked, sorry, tune in to another webinar, and hopefully you'll get to ask your question. Um, so thank you very much, Barak, for thank taking Thank you very much, and it was, uh, I, I really appreciate you um, inviting me to speak here. Thank you. Thank you. I just have two more sentences, which is I want to thank all of our supporters on this call for, for making our work possible. And again, if you've not yet given to Israel Policy Forum, please uh, consider a contribution. You can make one online at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. So thank you all again for joining us. Uh, this recording will be posted on our website later if you want to hear uh, what Barack had to say again. Um, and remember that uh, we will have our next annexation watch briefing webinar uh, next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, because if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, everyone stay safe, be well. And again, Barack. Bye-bye.